you to turn in your Bibles this morning to Deuteronomy from the Old Testament. Deuteronomy, it's the fifth book, chapters 28, 29, and 30. We're not going to read them all, but we're in that section. Deuteronomy 28, 29, and 30. And the key verse this morning actually comes from Deuteronomy 30, verses 15 and 16. See, I have set before you today life and prosperity and death and adversity, and that I command you today to love the Lord your God, to walk in His ways and to keep His commandments and His statutes and His judgments, that you may live and multiply, and that the Lord your God may bless you in the land you are entering to possess it. Two weeks ago, I began a series that I'm calling God's Economy. It's just kind of a short segment in our whole overview of kind of who we are as a church and where, where we're headed and what our core values are. And in speaking of God's economy, as I mentioned to you then, I have never given a sequence of messages on giving or tithing, and I don't plan to now. What I plan to do is incorporate that into the bigger picture that it deserves, that living as God's people has certain kinds of expectations upon us that has to do not with just tithing, but it has to do with our whole life. And I think it's important that we see that because I think that oftentimes, first of all, anytime you mention the word stewardship in a group of Christians, they automatically think what? Tithe, money, tithe, giving. He's going to talk to us about giving. And that's not what I'm doing because that's not what stewardship means. The word stewardship means management. And managing is not the same as giving. Managing is the oversight and the care and the administration of something that doesn't belong to you. It is required of stewards that they be found faithful. And as we saw two weeks ago, going back to Genesis to gain the foundation for our understanding, our worldview of God's economy, God owns it all. And whatever you have that has your name attached to it is on loan to you from Him. It's His. It belongs to Him. And so it's about managing what God has put under your administration. That's important. Another thing that I think we have to clarify as we move into this is that there are as many views of managing and wealth and what the Bible says about wealth and prosperity, there are probably as many views as there are people, but there are a number of views out there that are promoted, and everyone who promotes one has a scripture verse to back them up. All the way from the prosperity preachers, and you know who I'm talking about, they're the ones that say basically, if you really love Jesus, He wants you to be rich and healthy, and happy, and, and full of uh, all kinds of stuff, and good health, and, you know, you just, you're just uh, living in uh, easy street. 
all the way to those who say, if you're really a follower of Christ, you won't own anything. You'll take a vow of poverty and you'll give everything away to the poor and you'll just follow Christ uh, with, you know, day by day. And somewhere between those two extremes, there's, there's all kinds of other teaching in the middle. None of those captures the heart of the Scripture on the subject. All of them rely to one extent or another on proof texting. And what I mean by that is, you pick a verse that fits your view, and you champion that verse. There's actually a technical term for that, it's called eisegesis. Now, those of you that are used to me, you're used to the word exegesis. And that's when you take the meaning of Scripture and bring it out. You lead it out to the people to understand it. Eisegesis is when you take what you like and you find a verse that fits and you read it in. In other words, you make the Bible fit your philosophy. So, people who proof text, who find a verse that fits their ideas and they trumpet that verse are not exegetes, they're eisegetes. And they like to make the Bible kind of fit their program. We can't do that. If we're going to have a good understanding of what God says about this whole subject of wealth and money and prosperity and, and blessing, if we're really going to get a handle on it, we have to take the whole Bible and we have to look at everything that it teaches and put it together and come up with a worldview, an economic perspective that is rooted and centered in God's plan and purposes for His people. Now, having said that, if I could pick a verse out of the Bible and use it as a focal point, I think it would be the verse from Proverbs 30. It's actually two verses, Proverbs 38 and 9. I've written the King James Version down here because that's the way I had to look it up. That's the way I memorized it. I couldn't find it in any other concordance. But here it is, Proverbs 38 and 9. Remove far from me vanity and lies. Give me neither poverty nor riches. Feed me with food convenient for me, which means useful and beneficial to me. Lest I be full and deny thee and say, Who is the Lord? Or, lest I be poor and steal, that the name of my God uh, may be taken in vain. In other words, the writer of the proverb is saying, Lord, just give me the middle road. Satisfy me. Give me the stuff I need. If I'm too rich, I might get arrogant. And forget where it came from. And if I'm so poor that I'm hungry, I might be tempted to steal. Just keep me in the middle ground. So, keep that verse in the back of your mind as uh, we look at the, what the Scriptures have to say regarding blessing and prosperity. Now, I'd like you to turn in your Bibles to Deuteronomy chapter 28. And I want to begin reading here in verse 1. And I want you to listen to what God is saying to His people. Here's the setting. They have been wandering in the wilderness for 40 years. They've just been out there with Moses, uh, following the cloud, the pillar of fire at night, the cloud by day. Um, because of their disobedience at Kadesh Barnea some 38, 39 years ago, uh, 
God said, this generation is not going to go into my promised land, but now that time has passed. Moses is a, a, a man of 120 years of age. And he is ready to just go home and be with God. He's done. He's giving his last speeches, and he's reminding the people of God's promises and blessings. He's about to hand the mantle over to Joshua, who's going to lead them across the Jordan into the promised land. This is the setting. They're camped uh, outside Jordan in the wilderness. They're about ready to enter the promised land, and they're getting their last instructions. And Moses, God says this through Moses, uh, Deuteronomy 28, verse 1. Now it shall be, if you diligently obey the Lord your God, being careful to do all His commandments which I command you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All these blessings will come upon you and overtake you if you obey the Lord your God. Blessed shall you be in the city, and blessed shall you be in the country. Blessed shall be the offspring of your body, and the produce of your ground, and the offspring of your beast, the increase of your herd, and the young of your flock. Blessed shall be your basket and your kneading bowl. Blessed shall you be when you come in, and blessed shall you be when you go out. The Lord will cause uh, your enemies who rise up against you to be defeated before you. They will come against you one way and flee from you seven ways. The Lord will command the blessing upon you in your barns and in all that you put your hand to. He will bless you in the land which the Lord your God gives you. The Lord will establish you as a holy people to Himself as He swore to you if you keep the commandments of the Lord your God and walk in His ways. So all the peoples of the earth will see that you are called by the name of the Lord. They will be afraid of you. And the Lord will make you abound in prosperity in the offspring of your body, the offspring of your beasts, the produce of the ground, the land which the Lord swore to your fathers to give you. The Lord will open for you His good storehouse, the heavens, to give rain to your land in season and to bless all the work of your hand. And you shall lend to many nations, but you shall not borrow. The Lord will make you the head, not the tail. And you only will be above. You will not be underneath. If you listen to the commandments of the Lord your God, which I charge you today to observe them carefully, and do not turn aside from any of the words which I command you to the, today, to the right or to the left, to go after other gods to serve them. Now, in these verses, some of the things that stand out to me, first of all, is that God really, really wants to bless His people. That's His heart's desire. He wants to bless His people. He wants to bless us. That's the nature of God. And as we saw last week when we were looking at Genesis, that blessing includes a lot of things, among them being rest. One day in seven you get to spend in the presence of God and with family and friends. And if you know anything about Jewish culture, I mean, that's that one day in seven is set aside. Uh, and if they're strict Jews and observe it even today, then what that means is, is that on sundown Friday, they stop their work 
And for 24 hours until sundown Saturday, they go to synagogue, they read the scripture, the, the law, they discuss it, they have their family together, they just rest. And God said not only that, as we looked at uh, the, the scriptures a couple of weeks ago, not only do they get one day in seven, but they get one whole year off out of seven. Every six years, he said, I will bless your harvest in such a way that you'll have enough for the whole seventh year and the eighth year until the harvest time. I'll make sure you have enough need. Take a year off every seven years. Every 50 years, you get two off. You get the 49th year and you get the 50th year, the year of Jubilee. God wanted his people to be blessed in such a way that they would have ample time to rest, to spend time in His presence, to enjoy the Lord, to enjoy each other. God put a premium on those relationships. And if you also look at these, the Scripture passage as I read through it, there was one thing that probably stood out. And if you want to do a Bible study exercise when you get home, go home and try this. Um, look at these passages, those verses I read, and even these three chapters. And every time you come across the phrase, if you obey my commandments, or if you keep my statutes, underline it. And see for yourself that God's blessing is not carte blanche, unilateral, I'm just going to make you all rich. His blessing was contingent upon certain criteria. And those criteria included loving God with all of your heart and all of your mind and all of your soul and all of your strength and keeping His Word and keeping His statutes and keeping His commandments. God wanted to bless his people who followed him. We're going to see at the end of the message that it's no different today. The terms have changed somewhat in terms of the how-to. But the what remains the same. When God promises blessing in the scripture, it is contingent upon certain conditions. And we'll see that as we go along. Now, when we get into this whole study of what is a biblical worldview of God's economy, what does he want us to know about wealth? Our tendency as Westerners and as Americans in particular living in our culture today, our tendency is to read into the Bible promises what we have come to expect. And if you ask most Christians... Um, if God is really taking care of you and meeting all of your needs, what will that look like? You know, you stand on the street corner and do this survey. Are you a Christian? Yes, okay. If God's taking care of you and meeting all of your needs, what does that look like to you? And I'm sure you get a wide variety of answers. But I'm fairly certain that almost all of those answers would include uh, houses and cars and clothes and uh, you know, jobs and, and good health and entertainment and dinners out and plenty of groceries. And, you know, the list would go on of all the ways that would show that God was blessing us. 
we tend to take that conception and we tend to read it into the Old Testament. And we also tend to take these promises and make them personal. If I do this, God will do this for me. This is how this works. I do this, God does this. And when we go back and look at the Old Testament, we see that that's not what God was saying. There's something else going on here. And one of the things that we need to recognize is not only to put the interpretation in the context in which it was given, but to recognize that God was speaking to a whole nation. He was not talking to individual people when these promises were made. He was talking to a whole nation. He said, if you as my people collectively, my whole nation, the Israelites, if you will do this, if you will obey me and follow me and love me and keep my commandments and pay attention to my statutes, I will bless you as a nation. Think about it. How many people have ever seen a rain cloud follow property lines? You know? This neighbor's righteous, this one's ungodly, so when it rains, it just rains inside his fence. It doesn't happen that way. God's blessing is for the general people under a general parameter or a general acceptance of are they following God, are they loving Him, are they serving Him or not. And one of the things that's hard for believers to kind of wrap their head around is When a nation is blessed, everyone is kind of blessed in general. And when a nation suffers, everyone suffers. We are living in a tough economy right now. You may love the Lord with all your heart and follow Him and serve Him and be obedient to Him, but I'll bet you anything, your house has devalued just as much as your neighbor's. Because it doesn't work in the economy for your house to keep its value because you love Jesus and everybody else's has gone down 30, 40, 50%. Everyone suffers in this downturn of the economy. Everyone is blessed when it's going up. And this is what God is saying to the Israelites. As a people, I will bless you. If as a people you are doing certain things. There were always godly people in Israel. Elijah found that out when he was complaining to God. He said, you know, he's, he's run into the desert. He's running from Jezebel. He's out under this bush. And he's kind of crying and moaning and wailing to God and saying, you know, and God says, what are you doing out here? And he says, well, I, I, I tried to take care of the prophets of Baal. And you were there, you know, I called fire down from heaven. And it, it got pretty exciting for a while, but then Jezebel uh, got after me, and I've run out here, and I'm the only one left. I'm the only one that loves you. I'm the only one serving you. And he says, Elijah, there's all kind of people back there that have never bowed the knee to Baal. And it's like, well, I didn't know that. But the nation as a whole was ungodly. There were godly people in the ungodly nation. They were suffering under the rebellious and ungodly rule. But they still love the Lord. Contrarywise, when a nation is on good footing and following God, there are evil people, there are wicked people. That's why there are laws and rules and there's enforcement and there's 
the police. I mean, there are always those who, no matter how good things are, they're going to go do their own thing and create potential harm. So when we look at these promises in the Old Testament, we need to take the individual component out of most of them. Not all of them, but most of them. We need to look at the fact that God is speaking to his whole nation and he is telling them certain things that will be true of them as a people. We also need to recognize that God was talking to a nation that had an agrarian economy. In other words, they were farmers and shepherds. These people were not post-industrial revolution, building mega-empires. They were farmers and shepherds. And the kind of things that God was saying to them is, I will give you rain. I will bless your kneading bowl and your basket. I will make sure that you have enough food to eat. I will see that your family is blessed. I will care for your herds and and your crops and make sure that your herds are multiplying and your crops are plentiful. I am going to make sure that your needs are met. And in the process of that, I, I want you to enjoy the land. I want you to be blessed in the land. But some of us, if we were to look back and project ourselves into that time, we might have a different view of how that looks. How would you like to sit down in the front yard with your kneading bowl and, you know, knead your bread and bake it on the stone oven outside or whatever and, you know, and say, wow, I'm, I'm really blessed of God. I've got my bowl and it's got flour in it and I'm able to make bread today. We look back at those words and we hear something different. I mean, we see Armani suits and Mercedes and God is saying, bread, I'm, you're going to get bread, you're going to have food to eat, I'm going to take care of you. And, and their whole culture was a different kind of culture, where they primarily were as families in business for themselves, working their farms, providing for their needs, and God's saying, I'm going to take care of you as a nation. I'm going to make it so that as a people, you're able to lend to other people, but Nobody's, you're not going to have to borrow anything. In other words, you're going to have security. You're going to have your basic needs met. And as a nation, they could enjoy relatively good health and relative prosperity in harvest and livestock and strong families and secure lands and farms and homes. Now, when we look at our situation today, We are far removed from this. When God promised them good health, for example, he said, if you follow the dietary plans I have given you, and if you do it the way I'm telling you to do it, none of the diseases that have fallen on the nations around you are going to fall on you. Think about what he was saying to them. If you plant your crops and grow your food and take care of your herds, and your flocks, and and you follow the directions I've given you, I'm going to bless you in such a way that you will be healthy people and not experience the diseases of other nations because you're going to be morally sound, you're going to be nutritionally sound, 
You're going to be godly in your behavior. You're not going to be in debt. You're not going to be working your fingers to the bone all the time. I'm going to take care of you as a people in this broader context. We don't live like that anymore. You know, our food is not organic. We're opening cans and and, and packaged foods with dyes and additives and supplements and vitamins and preservatives and whatever else they took out of it on one end and try to put back in it on the other end synthetically. And God only knows what we're actually consuming. In a culture that is not agrarian, in a culture that is totally wrapped up in technology and production and and manufacturing and all of those kinds of things and and we live lives that are full of stress and we're not as a nation it's very difficult to live this way in our culture I'm not saying it's impossible but but God was speaking to a people in a time and place where his blessings were promised in ways that involved the whole attitude of the people and we live in a very kind of, a different kind of situation you know, and I have to believe that some of the things, I mean, some of the stuff that children are being afflicted with today, you know, when you think about how many kids are being uh, diagnosed um, with uh, all kinds of mental disorders as young children and all kinds of learning disorders and all kinds of things, go, what is going on? What's with all the cancers? What's with all the stuff that our society... There is, there is a, a kind of blight upon our whole culture that's prevalent. And there's struggle. God speaking to a people. And as a people, we have gone far away from Him. And we are living in a very different time in a very different way. God was speaking to them as a nation. And he said, you've got to put me first. You've got to follow me. You've got to love me. You've got to serve me. You've got to do what I tell you to do. And blessing will come to you. It's, it's not, I do this and I get this. It's, I live this way in my life. And blessing accrues in my life. And in my family and among my neighbors. And God knew that there would always be people among them that fell on hard times. In other words, when He spoke these words, He knew there would be people that would hit snags in life and have hardship. Financial hardship. Material hardship. When you look at the Scripture, God made provision for that. When you study the law, the law of Moses that God gave Him, you find that God made provision for the people that fell into difficulty. Why do people get into financial difficulty? Why do they have hardship? Well, one reason is, sometimes they're just stupid. They make bad choices, and they make enough bad choices that they dig a hole for themselves that they can't get out of. And we have a tendency to look at everybody that's struggling and say, well, they must have been stupid. But they're not all stupid. There are other reasons. We live in a time in our nation when the economy is bad and employment is, unemployment is high. Some people 
lose their job. They didn't plan to. They didn't want to. They don't like it. And now they can't get another one. And it's difficult. And that's not anything anybody did to themselves. You know, you don't plan that. They might have been good managers. They might have been faithful stewards. They might have loved the Lord. But the blight has spread. And individuals suffer because of it. God's people are not exempt from the troubles that surface in a nation. It's kind of like the tide. It rises, all the boats rise and fall on the harbor. And we're a part of that. Just like I said about your homes. Christians aren't exempt from the decline in home values. Some believers lose their jobs. Sometimes people get sick. And they're not able to work. And if we go back to this agrarian economy where they're farming and caring for herds and whatever, and you're sick and you can't go out and work, your farm fails. There's just no way around that. And that happens. And so sometimes that happens to people. And God knew that that would be the case. And so He said to them, when people get into hardship, and and I love this about... You know, the way the Scriptures are, because it just kind of takes the whole thing and puts it all together. You might be in difficulty, and let's not get picky about how you got there. Let's just look at the fact that you're there. God made specific provision. He said, if you see someone that's in trouble and they ask you to borrow money, here's God's instruction to His godly people. Lend it to them without interest. And without collateral. And oh, by the by, don't necessarily expect to get it back. If you can't afford to lose it, don't loan it. Say, that's a little weird. But that's what the scripture says. If a man gives you his coat as collateral for his debt, give it back to him the same day before nightfall. It was a nice gesture on his part, but don't deprive him of his coat. Give it back to him before night falls. Lend him the money and expect no interest. Now, I know some of your Bibles translate that usury. And I know that usury has a different definition in today's standards. It usually means what the guys in the pinstripe suits extract (laughs) The loan sharks, that's usually what it's talking about. The illegal lending that's exorbitantly high interest. But that's not what the Bible's actually saying. The words that are used in the Old Testament literally mean, lend your money with no interest. Do not charge your neighbor interest on the money you lend. If they need to borrow from you, Make sure you can afford to lose it, and then lend it to them without interest. Because I want my people to be blessed. And if they really get themselves in a hole that they can't get out of, and they can't work, and their farm's declining, and they're losing it all, and the only thing they can do is, is kind of sell the land and offer themselves as whatever service they can give, God said... Remember that Jubilee year and add up the numbers. If your family 
is going to get 25 years between now and Jubilee, it's worth this much. But if your family's only going to have three years between now and Jubilee, it's only worth this much. Because here's the deal. In the 50th year, you give it all back. You don't charge anything for it. You don't keep anything. You give it right back. This is my land, God says. I'm lending it to you to use. If your neighbor gets in such a predicament that he can't take care of himself and he sells himself and his property to you, in the 50th year, all the land goes back to the family and any slavery, any endangered servitude that you have, they are free. They can start over. It's the year of Jubilee. And you just write it off. So figure it out based on that that terminology. What God was saying was, I don't ever want any one of my people in my land to suffer permanent harm. Hardship may come to individuals, have compassion, have mercy, have grace upon them, take care of them, do whatever is necessary to get through it, But understand that the score gets evened every 50 years and there's no debt. Everything's forgiven. Boy, don't you, wouldn't you like to have that now, really? (laughs) Wouldn't that be good? (laughs) Man, I got all this, I got this mortgage, I got this, I got my credit cards, oh my goodness, my car payments. Ah. Oh, it's the year of Jubilee, it all goes away. See, that's the way it was. Because God didn't want His people to get all hung up on getting rich. He wanted them to get hung up on Him and enjoying His bountiful blessing in their life. We have to get the big picture to get a handle on all of it. Now, turn with me in your Bibles, if you will, to Matthew chapter 6, because I'm coming to the New Testament. And we're going to switch gears and listen to Jesus in the Sermon on the Mount as he talks to the people. Matthew chapter 6, verse 19. These are the words of Christ to the crowds, the multitudes in Jerusalem, first century. Do not store up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But store up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. Now, Jesus is telling us something about our priorities about what we value and our heart. And he says, if you are focused on accumulating wealth, that's where your heart is going to be stuck. If you are focused on me, that's where your heart is going to be. And now he says something very interesting. He says, the eye is the lamp of the body. So then, if your eye is clear, your whole body will be full of light. But, if your eye is bad or dark, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then, 
the light that is in you is darkness, how great is the darkness. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or God and wealth. Now, in the middle of this passage is this statement about how you see, how clearly you see. An eye that is clean and pure and light, your whole being is flooded with light. If if it's dark, your whole being is flooded with darkness. This is in the middle of these statements about priorities and wealth. And what is he telling us? If you are always looking for the next deal, if you are always looking for the next toy to buy, if you are always shopping online, in your mind, or in the stores, if that's what you're looking for, you are going to be blinded to what is really valuable and precious in life. You're going to miss it. And your whole life is going to be flooded with darkness. This is what Jesus is saying. But if you have your values and your interests focused on Him, you will be able to see true worth and recognize things for what they are. You will have clarity of vision. It will make sense to you. Friends, listen, there's a lot of people in our culture and maybe in this room that are running around living their lives with blinders on. You're after the wrong stuff. And it's clouding your vision. You can't see. And you're going to come to the end and look at the stuff you wrapped your hands around and wonder, why did I do that? I've wasted my life. Because it really, in the end, doesn't hold any value. He that dies with the most toys does not win. He loses big. Because you can't take any of it with you. I mean, you're done and it's done and it's over. And now, what is there? There's face to face with God. And how are you going to account for it? Jesus, it's in the middle of the economy that he says, if you're after the wrong stuff, you're blind. And he makes this statement that is absolutely unequivocal. He says, you cannot serve God and wealth. You must make a decision. You can pursue God or you can pursue wealth, but you cannot have both. Make a choice. Jesus makes it so clear. And then he goes on to say, for this reason, okay, that's the backdrop. You're after the wrong stuff, you're blind, and you can't serve God and money at the same time. For this reason, I say to you, that's the backdrop, and here's the explanation. Do not be worried about your life. 
as to what you will eat or what you will drink, nor for your body as to what you will wear. Is not life more than food and the body more than clothing? Look at the birds of the air. They don't sow or reap or gather into barns, and yet your Father feeds them. Are you not worth much more than they? And who of you, by being worried, can add a single hour to his life? Why are you worried about clothing? Observe how the lilies of the field grow. They do not toil, nor do they spin. Yet I say to you that not even Solomon in all his glory clothed himself like one of these. When's the last time, by the way, you stopped and really looked at a flower? I mean, really looked at a flower. That's one of the reasons why I, I love macro photography so much. I, I love to look at the flowers. I love to just be around them and see them. And, but I like to take a picture that I can make that little flower about this big and really see the color and the texture. And the, it's amazing. When's the last time you looked at a flower? It's hard to observe the lilies of the field if you haven't observed any, don't you think? Solomon couldn't hold a candle to their clothing. I say Solomon, all his glory, was not clothed like one of these. But if God clothes the grass of the field, which is alive today and tomorrow is thrown in the furnace, will he not much more clothe you, you of little faith? Do not worry then, saying, what will we eat, or what will we drink, or what will we wear for clothing? For the Gentiles eagerly seek these things. Okay, let me pause again. Listen to what Jesus is saying. What are we going to wear? What are we going to eat? What are we going to drink? Ungodly pagans seek this stuff. What? Ungodly pagans are worried about what they're going to eat or drink or wear. But your Father knows that you need all these things, but seek first His kingdom... And His righteousness and all these things will be added to you. So do not worry about tomorrow. Tomorrow will take care of itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Sky Jatani, who is one of the editors with Leadership Journal and Christianity Today, uh, he's in our district and serves and preaches occasionally in a church within our district. I won't say which one specifically because of what I'm about to tell you. But in his book, With, he recounts teaching on this passage in an adult Sunday school class of Christian and Missionary Alliance Christians, people like us. And he said to them, how many of you believe that what Jesus said here is literally true? And no one in the class believed that Jesus intended these words to be taken literally. No one. They all felt that Jesus, in one way or another, was using hyperbole to make a point. And hyperbole means way exaggerating the point to get you to kind of just readjust your perspective a little bit. Don't think about tomorrow what? What are you, nuts? 
My mortgage payment's due tomorrow. Don't take any thought for what I'm going to eat or drink. Are you crazy? Don't have any savings or lay up any treasures if you lost your mind. I can't live like that. Jesus didn't mean it. Well, first of all, it's a misunderstanding to say that he was not that he was saying don't have a savings account or a retirement fund or an insurance policy. Jesus wasn't saying that. But it's also a complete misunderstanding to say that he didn't mean what he said. He means exactly what he says, and there's no biblical justification for interpreting it any other way. He literally means stop worrying even about life's necessities. Put your trust in God. He will take care of you. And if you have nothing except enough food for today and one set of clothing and some water, don't worry about tomorrow. Put your trust in God. Seek first His kingdom. And if you have two million dollars in the bank, put your trust in God. And seek first his kingdom. Because if you have your confidence in your riches, you are a fool. I've talked to people over the years and they've had all kinds of interesting things. Interesting schemes. Some people say, well, you know what? I don't put my money in the banks or in the stock market. I, I, I'm buying gold. I have uh, gold in my safe deposit box, and that's my insurance. Oh, really? What are you going to do when the political system changes and somebody comes to power who is not in a democracy but in a dictatorship, you think that'll never happen? Better read your history books. And that person says, if you have gold, you must turn it in. If you're caught with it after January 1st, you will be shot. What good is your gold going to do you? You know, well, I've got cash money. Turn in your cash. We're going to put a chip in your hand and we're going to direct deposit what we think you deserve. And you're going to buy and sell with that chip. And don't even think about the black market. People in the black market will be shot. You're going to do as we say, and here's how you're going to buy and sell and trade and make a profit. Our terms, not yours. You have your hope in your retirement account. Have you read the newspapers lately? Do you think that that's guaranteed against the future? You have social security? What? Do you know how bankrupt that is? It's only a matter of time. Jesus is saying, don't rest your security and your hope in earthly possessions. That's not where it is. It is in the Lord. 
He knows what you need. Don't even get hung up pursuing it. Don't try for wealth. Don't make it your objective. Because it will corrupt you. In fact, the Scripture says the love of money is a root of all kinds of evil. It will take you away. You cannot pursue money and pursue God at the same time. It is not possible. You must have your focus on Jesus Christ. Now, if he gives you wealth, then he may. And I have known wealthy people who were also godly people. If he gives you wealth, then, and, and he may do that. You say, what am I supposed to do? Just sell it all and give it to the poor? And I'll talk about that scripture passage another time, but that's not what the Bible says. Let me be honest with you. If you have $2 million in the bank... You have a lot more praying to do than the person who just has enough to finish out the week. Because that's not your money. It's God's money. It belongs to Him. It all belongs to Him. In the Old Testament, the concept of the tithe, and many people have this wrong. They think, okay, I give 10% to God and the other 90% is mine. That is not the concept of the tithe. In the Old Testament, the concept was, it is all God's. And what I bring as an offering, my tithe, is, is the offering of first fruits to God who owns it all and has given it into my hand for a season. He owns it all. I recognize that by yielding the tenth to Him. But the 90% belongs to Him as much as the tenth. And so the question comes down to, if you have a lot of money, you better be talking to God about how to use it. Because it belongs to Him, not you. You're a manager, remember? You're not an owner, you're a manager. Your home is His. Your car is His. Your clothing is His. Your food is His. It all belongs to Him. How does He want you to use it? That's why the Scripture, that's why God can say very clearly... Be careful to entertain strangers and be hospitable and and, uh, welcome people into your home. Because it ain't your house. It's His. Be ready and available to share what He has given you with those who are strangers and foreigners and with those who have need. Be open about that because that belongs to God. It's not yours to own and possess. It's on loan to you. Do you have that sense about you? You know, as a manager, we have a responsibility. And the responsibility is to ask the boss what he wants to do with what he's delegated to our care. So I want to ask you this morning, do you pray about what you buy? No. Okay, I'm not talking about going to the grocery store and, let's see, do I get Cheerios or Wheaties? I don't mean that kind. But you might ask God about nutrition in general as part of your prayer life. But do you pray about your investments? Do you pray about your purchases? Do you ask God if you can have something? 
Lord, what do you think of this? I'd like, uh, whatever. What do you think of it? You know, some people feel like, I gave my tithe, I can go buy this fancy car. No, no, no. Lord, what do you think? Do you want me to drive that? Would you be pleased to, to make that possible for me? Or do you want me to have something else? Lord, get, can you guide me in this? Lord, do I need new clothes? Lord, do you want me to take on two or three of these orphans in this African orphanage? Do you want me to do that? Lord, what do you want with what you've given me? How do you want me to live? We have a responsibility as managers to put this all in God's hands and ask his counsel. It's up to him. And God says, Jesus, now this is New Testament, Jesus says, if you will live that way and put me first, my Father knows what you need. And he will meet your need. He will meet your need. We need to adjust sometimes what we think we need and bring it into reality. Do, do I need cable television with three movie services? Eh, probably not. It's not a sin to have it. But don't get down in the mouth if you can't afford it. You know, and then don't put it on a credit card either. Good grief. Ask God. Ask God how to use what he gives you. And trust him to lead you. That's his lordship. See, this whole business of living under God's economy is not about giving. It's about managing and about blessing. Because God's heart's desire for you is that you be healthy, stress-free, and adequately cared for. That's his heart's desire. We live in a fallen world. Stuff happens. But it could be a whole lot better if we paid a whole lot more attention. Now, in the Old Testament, the contingency was, you keep my rules and you follow me. You obey me. And you love me. In the New Testament, we have the Holy Spirit. Okay, you don't have to memorize the first five books of the Bible. What you have to do is say, Lord, you're the Lord of my life, so you tell me today how you want me to live. And whenever you go to make a purchase or go to do this or go to... Just say, Lord, what's your pleasure? I'm your servant. You'd be surprised what God will give you. You'll probably also be surprised at how he directs you. And you'll have the joy of knowing that you're being an obedient servant. Because the Lord loves you more than you could ever possibly love him. Father, I pray this morning that you will open our eyes to the bigger picture that we will see in a greater way your plan and purpose for us. Teach us, Lord, the truth. You have given us certain, certain uh, axioms, principles that are absolutely true. And one of them is that we cannot pursue you while we're pursuing stuff. 
we have to make a choice. And I pray, Lord, in Jesus' name, that you would give us the grace to choose life, to choose blessing, to choose God over all the other stuff so that we can see with clear eyes and have no illusions as to the real value and meaning of life. To seek first your kingdom and your righteousness. And to know that in your gracious kindness and loving care, you will provide for our needs. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen.